Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to St. Paul's, especially if you're here for the first time or you're spiritually searching, and welcome to those of us joining us online. Now, did you know that there is a Too Good to Be True Products Hall of Fame? Uh, from Reebok, claiming its easy-toned shoes firmed your leg muscles with every step, they were ordered to refund over $250 million to customers. To cancer-fighting zappers and purifiers that add chemicals to water. If it's too good to be true, it's because it often is. This morning, we are continuing to look at encounters between the resurrected Jesus and his friends. Looking at the impact those extraordinary meetings must have had and what it can mean for us over 2,000 years later. And the passage from the historian Luke that Aaron just read for us, it directly follows on our passage from last week, where on the very day of his resurrection, Jesus interacts with two discouraged disciples as they walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in this morning's encounter, where it just seems too good to be true, can Jesus really be resurrected? We see how Jesus does three things that change those disciples' lives. And if Jesus is risen, a fact that we are all in on here at St. Paul's, then Jesus can do the same things for you. One, Jesus engages our doubts. Two, he confronts our pain. And three, he sends us out with purpose and in power. So first, Jesus engages with our doubts. And don't forget that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt has a place within faith. All faith is an intellectual risk, which is why Jesus engages with the doubts we all have, whether we're spiritually searching or already a disciple. Let's remind ourselves of the context. Uh, just outside the capital city of Israel, Jesus was crucified by the Romans on a Friday, it's a non-disputed historical reality. And then on the Sunday morning, reports start flying around that he's been raised from the dead. There's this woman named Mary Magdalene. She's claimed to have talked to Jesus just outside his tomb. And that same evening, another disciple named Cleopas and uh, someone who's probably his wife, they'd inadvertently found themselves having supper with Jesus. Uh, they, of course, had then raced back to Jerusalem to tell Jesus's inner leadership team the stunning news. That team is now locked in a room in a house in Jerusalem in a time when most houses couldn't be locked, and they're afraid for their lives. Jerusalem was not a big city, and presumably they were now recognizable as followers of that political agitator, Jesus of Nazareth. And neither in Greco-Roman or Jewish culture at the time was there widespread belief that individual people could be raised from the dead. There were some groups who believed that at the end of time, there might be a general resurrection from the dead. But just like us today, people were not walking around wondering that if at the end of the funeral, maybe the deceased person would join the reception for a drink. Like, they weren't thinking like that. Which explains why in our encounter this morning, even though 
though the disciples had already heard several friends claim to have spoken and eaten with Jesus, this is what it says. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Perfectly logical response from perfectly logical people. Jesus doesn't seem to be particularly disappointed by their doubt, despite the fact uh, that these men had abandoned him in his hour of greatest need, with only the women and the disciple John staying nearby as he was tortured on Friday. Jesus debates them in their doubts. It's not too good to be true. Touch me. I've got bones. I've got skin. And what's interesting is that there's no indication from the text that the shocked disciples actually took Jesus up on his offer to touch him because of the next thing Jesus does. It's just so hilariously mundane. And if you were making up a story that someone was raised from the dead and was the king of like the whole world, you wouldn't write it like this. Uh-huh, mm, it's true, it's me, I'm risen from the dead. Anybody got anything for me to eat? One of the disciples, we don't know which one, then gives Jesus a piece of broiled fish. It's so uninspiring. But Jesus needed the disciples to understand that he wasn't spiritually raised. He wasn't a ghost. He was physically raised. And after offering physical proofs for his resurrection, Jesus then engages them historically, helping them understand what had been written about them, about the need for the Messiah to suffer and die in the Hebrew Bible. And the reason Jesus engages so seriously with their doubts is that his resurrection is what scholars call the authenticating miracle of the Christian faith. The authenticating miracle. It's like the username, password, PIN number, fingerprint, and eyeball scan all rolled into one. If what God said would happen did happen, the Messiah will suffer and die on the third day, be raised again, then everything else that God says and does is true. It's authenticated. When Bill Clinton was running for the presidency against the first George Bush, a man named James Carville was his election manager, and he effectively cut through all the myriad issues being debated with this brash election tagline. It's the economy, stupid. The Christian faith rises and falls on the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if the abrasive James Carville was speaking to those first disciples in a locked room, he would be saying, it's the resurrection, stupid. Jesus engages with our legitimate doubts. Because if he was not raised, it's all a con. We should all go home. Take your kids. Don't donate another cent. The risen Jesus engaged with those first doubting disciples so they came to believe. And the same can happen to us. I intellectually wrestled with the truth of the physical resurrection when I was an undergrad. Our St. Paul's youth group are away on retreat up north this weekend, bringing their questions and wrestling with them. People taking our Alpha course, those taking our Turning to Christ course, they're engaging and wrestling with this truth. It's so good. 
If someone you love has died, you know how you long to touch them again, for them to be physically present with you just like one more time. And it's this tangibility that we yearn for, and it's what the resurrection of Jesus gives us, the promise of our own resurrected bodies, one day with those who've gone before us in the faith. Jesus engages with our doubts so we can have confidence in this tangible future. Two, Jesus confronts our pain. Now the claim that Jesus arose from the dead, it's bold, it's audacious, and it's utterly logical to have questions about it. But the fact that human life is nasty, brutish, and short, to quote Thomas Hobbes, it's not an earth-shattering claim, right? Life is full of pain, not just for Leafs fans. Pain comes in as many shapes as there are people here today. And the Christian faith faces this fact head on. With the overwhelming majority of suffering that we experience being because either of our own bad decisions uh, or the bad decisions of the person sitting next to you or bad decisions of people who lived hundreds of years ago, or bad decisions that people are making right now on the other side of the world. Verse 46, And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, The Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed. After he'd eaten that, that piece of broiled fish, Jesus knew he absolutely had their attention. What does he decide to focus on? The problem of sin. Because it causes us so much pain. He reminds them how the scriptures are clear. The Messiah, God's long-promised rescue plan for all the problems of the world. The Messiah was going to suffer and die so that there's a way through the suffering of our lives. Promise of a renewed life one wonderful day where there is no pain. Jesus is eating that fish, not only to prove that he's physically risen, but also to eat with them. In ancient culture, eating with someone was even more important than it is in our culture. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says this, Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you. I'll eat with you. Eating was a sign of friendship, a sign of intimacy. And Jesus is eating here in front of friends who just a few days ago had abandoned him. Jesus ate with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Next week, we're going to see how Jesus ate breakfast on a beach. Jesus has come not to judge and condemn us, but to confront our pain, forgive and heal us. And if, like me... You regularly fail, spiritually, morally, intellectually. If one day you think that your breath will become shallow and that death will descend, then for him who is the resurrection and the life, you are just his cup of tea. The risen Jesus wants to eat with us on the often painful journey of daily life. Lastly, the risen Jesus sends us out with purpose and with power. We're meant to lead lives of meaning and purpose 
but many would struggle to see what that purpose is. In the so-called modern West, or postmodern West if you want, we live in what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, the imminent frame. We've built a worldview that increasingly excludes any possibility of a transcendent reality, right? Such as God or the spiritual realm or things being intrinsically good or intrinsically beautiful. And in a grand social experiment here in the West, we framed them out. Much as a picture frame includes the picture and excludes everything else. And we're trying to live without them. Some moments of the CBC coverage of King Charles's coronation were a perfect example, with comments about the church inserting itself into matters of the state, completely missing the point that whether you love or loathe the British monarchy, the coronation was an utterly transcendent event. The crowning of a king, anointed with holy oil, dedicated to serving people in imitation of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And the result of this framing out of the transcendent? Well, we certainly have a more kind of a certain freedom. We've definitely got more prosperity. We no longer need to look beyond ourselves for purpose, uh, no need for a telos, an end. And we've got opportunities to reinvent ourselves and generate purpose from our emotions. This is the business model of Disney. At great cost. If we are only a product of our free choices, then who we become is entirely our fault. We alone bear the weight of sorting out our lives. We alone bear the weight of our futures. We alone bear the weight of our deaths. Our suicide rates continue to climb. Social media continues to silo us like never before. And indigenous women's bodies are in a landfill in Winnipeg. We weren't made to generate our own meaning. We were made for purpose. And the risen Jesus gives it to us. Verse 48. This is Jesus speaking. You are my witnesses of these things. I'm going to send what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. We're witnesses to the resurrection. That's our purpose. To live lives shaped by and pointing towards the resurrection. Shaped by and pointing towards healing. Towards restoration, new life, hope. Go and repair a person's body. Go and restore a neighborhood. Go and heal a relationship. Go and feed a child. Go and plant a new church. Go. I'm not a ghost. We were made for much more than what our culture can deliver. Our culture frowns at us in a, well, maybe if you tried a little harder kind of way. Transcendence, resurrection gives us so much more room to live. Room for us to be sinners and saved. Room for us to be responsible and still in need of rescue. Room for us to be dying and yet knowing we're going to live. So much more room. Be my witnesses to the resurrection. Go. I'm not a ghost. Announce to the world through your words and your actions that the resurrected Jesus is king. Practice resurrection. And this purpose, says Jesus, it comes with power. What God the Father has promised, 
The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the risen Jesus can animate our words, can animate our actions. It's the Holy Spirit that makes Easter not too good to be true. By the Holy Spirit, God raised Jesus from the dead. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus is present with us now, is going to be present with us in the bread and wine. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're sent out as witnesses to practice resurrection in our homes, our places of work. The three things that Jesus gave those first disciples can be ours. Our doubts, they can be engaged. Our pain confronted. And we can be sent out with purpose in power. Where you're seated, let's pray. Heavenly Father, clothe us with power from on high that we may live resurrected lives shaped by your mercy, your grace, so all may know that your Son, Jesus alone, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.